morning, everybody, and welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk, lead pastor here, and we're so glad to be able to worship with you wherever you might be. Uh, I want to start off this morning with just kind of an introduction to our series that we're in right now called Tough Times. It's a series that's custom designed for these times that we're in right now. Last week, we heard about how God grows faith in tough times. Next week, we're going to hear about what God does with fear in tough times. Today is going to be a challenging one, though. Today, we are going to talk about anxiety, stress, those things that keep us up at night through tough times. Now, I want to recognize that for a lot of you, you're cooped up, uh, the shelter in place order, you haven't been outside, or if you've been outside, it's just to like walk around the block a little bit. And so when you, when I say tough times, when I say anxiety, there's all kinds of things that come along with that, just with the present circumstances that we're in right now. But I also want to acknowledge that there's all kinds of anxieties and stress that go well beyond the, uh, the coronavirus age that that really just plague us, that keep us down. So I know for me, looking back in my past, there's particularly a, a season of tough times. It came just before Encounter really launched as a church. It was just maybe 10 or a dozen people or so. Very, very limited resources. We didn't have all of what we have uh, blessed with right now. Um, but what we decided to do is launch big. We're going to start this church for people who didn't know that they love church and want to be a part of a church that they didn't know Jesus yet. And so we, we thought, we're going to throw ourselves like this big, huge, welcome to the neighborhood community carnival. And we pulled out all the stops for this church. Uh, we got Meyer, the local grocery store, to donate these gift cards. We used that, those cards to buy hot dogs and condiments, all that stuff uh, for food. W one of the other grocery stores, Horrocks Market, we got them to, uh, to donate their employees' time. They like paid staff to come and and. Uh, paint faces uh, of the kids. They brought watermelon slices. It was awesome. New York Life did these like printing child safety identification bracelets. Village Bike, a local bike shop, donated uh, uh, the bike tune-ups and like free helmet fittings. They also did a hilarious slow bike race, which is pretty awesome. Discount Tire. We got them to donate the time, the space, the use of their um, actual working replica of their NASCAR race car to be a part of a car show. Yes, we had a car show that was also part of this thing. I mean, we got one of those planes to fly overhead that said like free food at Endeavor School. I mean, you, you pay by the letter on those things. So like I said, we pulled out all the stops, church. We did everything we possibly could to get everybody to come to our community, community carnival where we could invite them to the launch, the grand opening of this amazing church, which was actually really their church. But there was, something, there was something that kept me up at night. It's that for all of the work and all the investment and everything that I did, I had no way of controlling one particular outcome, which was whether or not people were going to show up. And so like at night, man, I tossed and I turned and I was just afraid. All of this work was going to be for absolutely nothing. Like nobody would come or maybe just a handful of people. And we put so much into this. What would it mean for the life of the church? What would it mean for the dozen or so people that were like coming alongside of this thing? What would it mean if everything just fell flat? And it's like, it's just that it was because it was just outside of my control that was just outside of what I could, what I could demand the outcome to be that, that just made it infinitely worse. I wasn't in control. And some of you are sensing that and some of you are feeling that right now is that in these tough times, you're not in control. 
And you wish that you could just open up like a crystal ball and look on three months into the future, six months into the future, and whatever that future looked like, it would be better because you would know and you could prepare and you could plan. You would have some kind of control. And right now, these tough times, you don't have control. And so I want to show you uh, how we tend to deal with that. And there's some good ways to deal with that. There's, of course, some not so good ways uh, to deal with that. Just kind of right off the bat, I, I want to share some, uh, some of the ways that we deal with it. Is, uh, some of you are at home. I know I'm at home a lot. So, uh, you know, we've gotten kind of creative in the kitchen with meal prep time. We've kind of burned through the usual stuff. And now we're looking, we're looking for new recipes. So I thought, hey, listen, if you have anxiety or if you have like a lot of stress going on, and like at these times, especially who doesn't, I thought what I would do is share with you a... Um, a meal plan. This is called the stress diet, custom designed to, uh, to, to speak to us in food form around stress. So this is what it looks like for breakfast. We start off with a half a grapefruit, one slice of whole wheat toast, eight ounces of skim milk, optional coffee, black, of course, mandatory in my case. For lunch, we're going to do four ounces of lean grilled or broiled chicken breast, your choice, one cup of zucchini, one Oreo cookie, and more black coffee. For a mid-afternoon snack, the rest of the package of Oreos. <laughs> For dinner, one large meat lover's pizza, a two liter of Dr. Pepper, three Snickers candy bars. For dessert, an entire frozen cheesecake eaten directly from the freezer. You can understand why it's called the stress diet. And I'm guessing a few of us have been on that one. I know that I have this past week and I've lived the consequences the morning after. Like these are just some of the ways, isn't it? That we deal with anxiety, that we deal with stress. And in this one, it's very much in an unhealthy way of dealing with anxiety and dealing with stress. I know there's another way that we deal with it. And sometimes it's going to work. Even if going to work these days looks like going downstairs or upstairs or in a different room or a different corner of the room. And we hole up right there. We, we go into that corner of the room for hours and hours and days. We go to work, not just 40 or 50, but 60, 70, 80 hours a week. It's our way of dealing with stress. It's just a flurry of activity to get away from it all, to distract ourselves. Or maybe for you, how you deal with the anxiety, how you deal with stress is by doing nothing at all. Just paralyzed by fear, paralyzed by that stress and anxiety that's keeping you up at night. Sometimes what we do with dealing with our anxieties is to blame it on other people, deflect it to those around us and, and, and hurt them in the process. Sometimes we even turn to different substances, painkillers to, to just numb it all away. If I can't feel good, I don't want to feel anything at all. A glass of wine at night to wind down turns into two, three, four. Like it's bad. These are the things that we turn to. This is what we do in times of stress, in times of anxiety. And so there's a different way. And we kind of want to acknowledge from the get-go to say, if you're sensing this anxiety, not all of it's bad. If you're sensing this stress, sometimes that's God's like indicator light saying it's, a con it's time for course correction. Sometimes it's God's indicator light to say, listen, stop, pause, because I want you to learn something. I, wanna, I want you to grow in a certain way before you move on to be successful in something else. 
I think God has something for us here. We're going to go to the book of Philippians to figure out just like what that is. Uh, Philippians is the New Testament of the Bible. You can follow along at home. The words are going to be on the screen behind me, but if you'd like to in your paper Bible or in your app to kind of take notes to what God is going to speak to you and tell you throughout this time together, that's awesome too. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and you get to Colossians. That one's a little bit too far. As you're finding uh, Philippians, I want to give a little highlight like what's going on in this letter. It's written by Paul who wrote a lot of these letters in the New Testament to these different churches. Philippians is writing to to like his military installation city, right? So you imagine the, the city of Philippi, which the church of Philippians is a part of. The city is like, it was like him writing to Pensacola, Florida, right? Colorado Springs, Colorado, Norfolk, Virginia. It's like, if you're not directly employed by the military, you're, you're kind of tangentially related to it. The diner that you work at sees a lot of service members um, kind of like roll through, right? So he evokes a lot of this military language, a short, direct, to the point kind of language to make sure that he's heard. Let me, let me read it for you. And I think that you're going to be able to figure out what I mean by that. Let's read the whole thing through. It's just two verses long this morning. It's short and sweet, direct and to the point, which I think we love. Verse, uh, Philippians 4, verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God will guard, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Like I said before, two verses, not very much, not very long. That's it. That's everything. That's our passage for this morning. But I think it's sometimes true that these like short truths are so packed and are so profound and steeped in meaning. It's like they got to they gotta sink in slowly. And so that's what we're going to allow it to do is kind of go through line by line to like let those truths, let this profound truth speak to us and, and steep in our hearts slowly. Some of, the, uh, some of the skeptics among us, and that's okay, we love that. You're going to look at a statement like this and say, that's far too simplistic. Don't be anxious. I mean, come on. It's got to be harder than that. There's got to be more to that. Don't you think I tried not to be anxious before? And so I want to acknowledge this morning that it's simple, but that doesn't mean that it's simplistic. I think there's a difference between what it means to be simple and what it means to be simplistic. It's simple and profound, but it's not pat. It's not simplistic. It's deeper than that. There's more to it than that. Let me show you uh, what I'm talking about because I got this hunch that a lot of us are going to be stuck here in verse 6 and we haven't quite graduated and move on to the peace of God in verse 7. So let's talk about where we're stuck in this anxious. Uh, verse 6 starts off line by line. It says this simply, do not be anxious about anything. I just kind of want to talk about that word anxious. What that word means is a smash up in Paul's language when he's writing this. It simply means a divided mind. Don't have that. Don't have that divided mind distracted by a number of other things. I love what one person wrote. He's a former director of YMCA in Pittsburgh, Dr. George McCoslin. Uh, he was, he was uh, directing this YMCA. It was not going well. They had all kinds of lost memberships, which in turn meant a loss of key staff, employees, and they just kept losing more and more money. Like every month, they would just lose more money. The bills were stacking up. He was running payroll week to week, sometimes out of his own pocket, day by day. It's an extraordinarily stressful situation that he was under. And so he was venting. He was sharing some of this with a friend of his who was a counselor. And the counselor said, listen, man, just, as a friend, I'm telling you, the road that you're going on is, is one heading towards mental breakdown. 
right? You will have time off because your brain and your body are just going to give out. So my advice to you is to simply take the time up front so it can be used a little more productively while you still have your mind and body intact. And so he says, okay, you know, working 85 hours a week scaled back down uh, to taking an entire day off. He goes outside, he goes on a long walk. He sits down under a tree, writes out a pen and paper, starts writing down. He writes out a letter to God. He says, dear God, I hereby resign from being master of the universe. Love, George. And McCausland writing about that later says, and you know, wonder of wonders, God accepted my resignation. Can you believe that? It's like God allowed me to no longer be master of the universe, probably because he has that job all locked down already. He accepted my reservation. All right, so listen, church. I want to ask you, and just honestly, in a truth moment between you and God, if you or him, and you were on a walk and you sat down under a tree with your pen and paper in hand, Have you offered your resignation to God as being master of the universe? Or is there some way that you're still trying to manipulate? Is there some way that you're still trying to control outcomes? That if you can't have control, it's not worth it. I just want to ask, between you and God and you and God alone, is it maybe time for you to resign as master of the universe? What we're going to do is we're going to check out this anxiety and what I want to do for you is to show you a little bit before we get into some strategies, before we get into that, I want to show you a little bit why I think worrying just simply isn't worth it. You know, this word anxiety, it's used throughout the New Testament several times. Jesus even picked this up in his uh, famous Sermon on the Mount, one of the the most famous speeches that Jesus gave. He says, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worry about itself. Same word as the anxiety word here. He goes like, look, look at the birds. Look at the birds. They don't, they don't worry. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them and looks after them. What I love about that picture, when Jesus says, go look at the birds, is that he looks at the birds. And the birds aren't just like sitting idly by, right? The birds aren't just kind of there with like gaping open mouths or waiting for God to like throw a worm in there. The birds are active. The birds are doing something, but they're not stressed out about it. They're singing, but they're not complaining. You don't see like a bird over there with his little claw and his, you know, head in his claw and going, woe is me. I don't know how I'm going to ever pay for the nest this month. You don't see that out of the birds, but they're active and they're working. And so what I want to show is make good on these words of Jesus and see, aren't you so much more valuable for them? Three reasons, three reasons real quick, running down the list of why I don't think you should worry. Number one is it's unbecoming. It's unbecoming of who you are as a child of God. Aren't you so much more valuable than birds, Jesus said, and he would know. Aren't you so much more valuable? Aren't you a son or daughter of the king? Aren't you, doesn't that make you a prince or princess of the great high king? And yet you're worrying. It's unbecoming. It doesn't look good on you because of the dim view that it takes of your king who is actually the master of the universe. It's unbecoming. It's unproductive. Now I said this about a year ago on stage, but I know a lot of you are new and just joining us now. 
It's, uh, it's unproductive because of this study uh, by the University of Wisconsin some years ago. And they just took a look at the list of some of the things that we worry about. And among that list, they came up with uh, the things that we worry about. 40% of them are things that are never going to happen to us. Never going to happen to us anyway, so why spend the time worrying about it? On the list, they came up with 30% of the things that were about the past. And we couldn't really do anything about those On the list, they found that 12% of things were about other people and fears about the criticism that other people would have towards me, which really says more about them than it does really about us. 10% of the things that we worry about are about our health, which which is kind of ironic because by worrying about it, we actually do a disservice to our health rather than helping us out. And 8% of things that we worry about, they find the average person is about things that we can actually do something about just 8%. Now, I wonder, if, I wonder if that's maybe true for you too. That among the things that you spend worrying about, just to take a step back and to think and reflect on just how much of it isn't worth your time worrying about it because it's in that 92%. Listen, worrying, it's, it's unbecoming, it's unproductive, and it's unhealthy. What I... Uh, love about some of the biblical stories and the imagery, particularly one of them from the, the book of Daniel chapter 6. And if you didn't grow up with the Bible at home, or if you didn't grow up going to church a lot, there's a good chance that you still know uh, the story somewhat uh, of Daniel. You might know the story that, that Daniel one time got put down into a den, into a pit of agitated, hungry lions as punishment. You see, the king was tricked into throwing him into prison, into that pit with those hungry lions. The king didn't want to do it, but he got tricked into doing it. And so the king, that night, while Daniel was in the pit, the king was in his palace. Now, it was one of the grandest palaces. It was one of the biggest, best kingdoms in the history of the world. And the king was in his palace, and he was worried anxious with his divided mind among his loyal servant, Daniel, his friend, Daniel. And so the king, Darius, was in his palace and he was tossing and turning at night. He was up. It kept him, wrapped him up. He couldn't get away from it. In a palace, contrast that picture with Daniel who slept like a baby in a pit with agitated, hungry lions. Now the difference between the king in the palace who's tossing and turning and Daniel in the pit of lions who's sleeping like a baby, that key is found in these two verses. Let's um, continue on in the story here. Um, Don't be anxious about anything, continuing on in verse six, but in every situation by Prayer. And I just want to pause right there and say, but in every situation, by prayer. So when he says, but, he means this, this, this contrast. Wait, wait, stop, hang on. There's something else coming. Instead of being anxious, instead of stressing, instead of dwelling, instead of tossing and turning, but do this instead. It kind of reminds me of the pink elephant exercise. Some of you are familiar. If I were to ask you, hey, I would like everybody right now to think about a pink elephant, or don't think about a pink elephant. What we have right now is everybody across North America and a few places in the world thinking about a pink elephant, even though I asked you not to. That's what happens. It's not enough just to say, don't do something. He's now giving us something to do. 
my brother runs a business and he had to uh, address some of the employees uh, of the business in a, in a letter that went out to them, but also uh, the community wide and his customers. And he said, we are not taking this time off. No, instead we're relearning, we're retooling, we're retraining, we're getting certified in all these new areas so that when it's time to come back, we're going to be bigger and better than we ever were before. That's what Encounter Church is doing as well. We're reimagining, we're retooling all of our ministries to address them. We're not just doing nothing. What we're doing is we're doing something in its place. The biblical picture for what's happening now is called casting. That's used throughout, again, the New Testament. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all of your anxieties on him. Do something with it, like a fishing hook and a worm on it. Throw it out there. Do something with it instead of just simply trying not to do anything at all. That's impossible. Cast your anxieties, cast those worries, cast those stress on him. I just wonder in prayer, how often what we do isn't cast, isn't tossing those things onto God in prayer. How often is it true? And it's true for me at times as well. I'll be embarrassed to admit it, but I will. How often it's true that when something goes south, when something goes wrong, what we try to do is we try to fix it. And it's, in a sense, what we try to do is try to control it more. What we try to do is, is to try to recruit other people along with it to help get them to help me fix it. And what, what we do is try to manipulate, what we do is try to control, what we do is try to fix it and build it and do everything that we possibly can. And then when we are absolutely at the end of ourselves and at the end of our network of people who are willing to help, what we do when we have no place else to turn whatsoever because we go to God in prayer and say, listen, I guess I can't do this on my own with my network. Is this maybe something you can address? And I just need to point out the fallacy in that. Like, come on. I just need to point out the simple truth that prayer, as he's demonstrated here, prayer is a first responder, not a last resort. How much of life, how much of your anxiety would be different is if the first moment of trouble first moment of lost sleep, you immediately, we immediately went to God in prayer and to cast it and put it on God instead of waiting until his last possible resort. There was this famous evangelist and revivalist in Britain right around the time of the, of the turn of the century. So kind of 1900s, 1920, so, somewhere in there. Um, Dr. G. Morgan Campbell and Dr. Uh, so a woman, a w widow one time, came up to uh, Dr. Campbell and said, Sir, sir, do you think that God cares enough to hear even the little things that are going on in my life? And I love Dr. Campbell's response. He said, Madam, what do you think is big in God's eyes? What an awesome picture. Because that, that honors God with who he is. He's a big God. He's an infinitely big God. And what, what could we take, big or small, to us that lined up against infinity even makes a difference? What do you imagine is big in God's eyes, whether it's a stubbed toe or a stage four diagnosis? Whether it's a sniffle or the coronavirus going around, a pandemic, what do you imagine is big in God's eyes? Of course, he cares about the little things. He cares about the big things because he is infinite. 
And I just love what someone once said. They said, the great tragedy in life is not uh, unanswered prayer. No, the great tragedy in life is unoffered prayer. But, Paul writes, pray. And this is what that looks like. It's a four-step process. Uh, Listen to see if you can get them all. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He kind of runs right down the list. Prayer, petition, thanksgiving, request to God. I love when he starts off. He says prayer. And it's important to go into prayer. And then we're going to get an outline to it. Because when you pray, you're approaching the throne room of heaven. You're approaching God's dwelling place. And just like you approach anybody else, there's a certain, there's a certain pattern, a certain expectation, a, a way of approaching, if you will. There's a way of approaching dignitaries, governors, presidents, kings like here. There's a way of approaching friends or even family members. It's more casual, but there's still an expected way of approaching. And Paul says, it's no less true with approaching the throne room of heaven. When you go before the person of God in prayer, there's a way that we, there's a way that we act. There's a way, a manner in which we, we offer these insights, these offer these concerns, these anxieties of our heart. And it was the first way is by petition. And the word there for petition is just something that you do and keep on doing and keep on keeping on doing. It's just like again, 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 this, this repetition. And now there's some ways that you think like, oh, the rep- repetition of it, it probably, it probably annoys God. I don't think it does. I don't think it annoys God because Jesus had a way of just sharing this with us again and again. These stories, these parables, he would call them. They're made up stories and meant to leverage, uh, drive home a spiritual truth. Then these stories that Jesus told, one of them, it says a friend goes to another friend, a neighbor of his, in the middle of the night. He gets a knock on the door and the neighbor says, you know, what is it? He goes, I've got somebody coming, coming over. It's the middle of the night. I'm out of supplies. I don't have any bread. I don't have any meals, anything to offer them. Can, can you get out of bed, get your family out of bed because it's all one house? And can you bake me some bread so I can offer it to my guests? The guy says, no, I'm not going to do that. It's the middle of the night. Come back in the morning. And then he gets another knock and another knock and another knock. And their friend, he keeps knocking on his neighbor's door and says, hey, listen, could you help me? Could you get out of bed? Could you get out of bed? And Jesus tells the story and he goes, you know, eventually the neighbor, the friend, he gets out of bed and bakes the bread, gets his family up, gets going with the day, even though it's the middle of the night, not because he's friends, but because he kept on knocking on the door. It's because of his persistence. I don't think the repetition, I don't think the petitioning annoys God. I think it honors God and it changes us in light of it when we have to keep on keeping on asking God, petitioning God, laying ourselves before God. When we do something enough times, it starts to change us. So prayer, certain way of approaching God, petition, with thanksgiving. Oh, isn't that hard? Thanksgiving, especially now. As we're cooped up, as you're stir crazy, I get it. As we're tossing and turning at night, as we got our eyes closed, not falling asleep, not getting the rest we need, stressed out, tossing and turning, thinking, 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 thanking, pausing amidst the thinking to say thank you. Find something in the midst of the anxiety, in the midst of the tough times that we're in. Find something, church, to say thank you for. 
And you know what? This is going to be difficult. I think this is remarkably difficult, but I'm going to say it anyway. Say thank you, even for the hardships. Say thank you, even for the setbacks. Say thank you, even for the tough times, because they're tough times to us. I don't think they surprised God. They're tough times for us, but I think it's God's exact prescription for our growth. He knew what we needed. He still knows what we need. And he's growing us through it. And we can say thank you for caring enough to challenge us, spurring us on to grow. Prayer petition, thank you. And then offering your requests to God. It's good, it's interesting, isn't it, that he says requests. So what we're doing here, church, is we're not offering our demands to God. We're not offering our ultimatums to God as if we could ever do something or offer something that would, that would mean changing God's heart. No, 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 we're not offering any of those. We're offering our requests. God, would you please? Would you please step in here? Would you please intervene? Would you please? You know, somebody's gonna ask somewhere, why would you ask? Doesn't God already know it anyway? He sure does. He sure does. But I think he wants to hear you say it. He wants to hear your voice offered up to him. He wants to hear from you. And you know, as you ask with thanksgiving and as you keep on petitioning, keep on asking, it like fosters this this dependence in our heart, which is one of the most unnatural things in the universe to us. We were raised as children, as, as Americans, not to, not to be dependent on anyone for anything. But God craves that dependence on him because it acknowledges, yes, there are some things outside of your control. We get that especially now. And God says, I need you to lean on me for it because it's not outside of my control, is it? And Paul, who wrote this letter to the Philippians, wrote a different one and said, and said God's power is made perfect in my weakness because it's at the end of myself that God shows up. People can see him so clearly. They know it's not me, not at all. And then we graduate. And then we get to verse seven. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard that military language and will we'll become a, a garrison, a fortress that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's that peace of God that comes. Let me tell you something, church. I've had the opportunity, the blessed opportunity to sit with people who made these decisions, who made these choices to step across the line of faith, of belief, and to choose to believe that Jesus loved them to death and back again. And we say that around here, but what we mean by that is that, is that this is a decision to say, I believe that my sin is this, 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 this wall between where I am and where God is. And I believe that God loved me so much. He crossed that line, came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, suffered and died, paid the penalty of sin on my behalf, was crucified, dead and buried, defeated death, defeated sin and, and rose to new life again. 
I believe that. And I've, I've had the blessed opportunity to sit in, in rooms with people as they prayed that and as they made that choice. And it is powerful. Sometimes there's this overwhelming sense of peace and they start crying and I start crying and it's just an ugly, beautiful mess. And sometimes the peace doesn't come. Not immediately. And some of you might be experiencing that right now where you're going, I believe, but I haven't found that peace yet. So I think there's going to be a distinction that might help for you. So when you choose to believe, you get to put your shame and your sin, you get to put your fear on the back of Jesus Christ as he buries it in the grave and leaves it there forever and ever. When you choose to become a Jesus follower, when Jesus Christ becomes your savior, you get peace with God. You get that. That's yours. Peace with God. God is no longer an an enemy. We're no longer enemies of him because of our sin and because of our shame. We're united with God. When Jesus Christ becomes your savior, you get peace with God. But when Jesus Christ becomes your Lord, you get the peace of God. And there's a difference there. Because what it means to Jesus as our Savior is different than what it means for Jesus as our Lord. When he's our Savior, we believe in him and the story that he told of who he was. When he becomes our Lord, it's like we take an anxiety, we take a fear, we take a bit of our shame and we put it one at a time on the back of Jesus and allow him to bury it. When he becomes our Lord, we take little bits of ourselves, of our hearts, of our joys, of our fears, and we put it on Jesus and say, you know what? I think that you're actually better at dealing with this than I am. Here, Jesus, take it and bury it. I'm yours now. That's what it means for Jesus to become your Lord. And so the challenge for you this week, church, What I'm encouraging you for this week is for you to take a little bit of your anxiety and say, Jesus, I need you to take this. I need you to be this much more, not only of my Savior, of my Lord this week, especially in these tough times. And then the peace, your peace, is going to invade my life, my heart, and my mind. You know, that's what happened to me years ago in that story of our giant welcome to the neighborhood community carnival. I was so worried about people showing up. I was so worried and anxious and afraid about about messing everything up. And you know, the honest truth is I did mess it up a lot of different ways. Those hot dogs I told you earlier, I had no idea about 20% of the people that I had invited were Muslims and they weren't gonna eat pork. That was a giant oops. I did all kinds of things wrong in planning out a carnival. But you know what? God saw it through anyway. And at that time, I had turned, I had been turning to God in prayer and in worship like never before. Going to him, petitioning to him. God, verses in the Bible would jump out at me. Every song lyric that I sang would speak to me. And some of you are in that season right now. And God brought people. They did show up. But so much more important than that isn't just that people showed up. It's that this one person showed up. Jill. Not her real name, but very much is a real person. I found out talking to her and her kids in line for one of the games at the carnival is that Jill had just moved to West Michigan about a week earlier from Oklahoma. She was a victim of domestic violence and she was running away. 
She chose West Michigan because it's the only place her employer could send her or she would immediately have work when she arrived. And she asked me, she turned to me in the line and sharing some of her story and mine. And she asked me, why would you do this? Give away all of this for free. And I got to share with her my hope of a God who gave us so much more as a free gift. And Jill was there on the birthday of our church, October 10, 2010. Cast your anxiety on him, church. It's worth it. He can carry it. What's something that you need to set down in order to call him a little bit more of your Lord this week? And if you're ready to declare him as your savior, if you're ready to go to him and say, I choose to cross that line of belief, I'm ready, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment down below and we're immediately gonna pray for you. We're gonna surround you. We have a community of people, designated people who are ready to celebrate what God is doing with you and through you. Or if you need help in some way, you can email us, prayer at encounterchurch.org. You can leave a comment. How can we pray? How can you turn something over to Jesus to make him your Lord this week? It's time to set down our burdens, our anxieties, church. It's time to experience that new life that Jesus was talking about. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, we're carrying around some of us so much, incredibly more than we have to, incredibly more than we should or even can. God, as we heard earlier, that director of the YMCA was headed towards a breakdown. Some of us are on that road. Some of us are stressed and plagued and burdened with anxiety. God, give us the grace and the space to pause and say thank you and to go to you and keep on going to you until you make good on your promise of new life, which starts today. Jesus, give us your peace that passes understanding. It's in your name we pray. Amen.